Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Sarah Hook, a lecturer at the Western Sydney University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Dealing Fairly with Parody, How Literary Theory Can Inform Legal Definitions, which was published in the Australian Intellectual Property Journal. So welcome to the program, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So I really enjoyed reading this article, and I was doubly pleasantly surprised to find that it's actually the third article I've interviewed a scholar for about the about for the for the podcast that included a discussion of Mikhail Bakhtin. So I thought that was a really funny, a really funny coincidence. Um, but yeah, but because you're Australian and you're writing about um, copyright and and parody from an Australian perspective, I was wondering if you could start by explaining for American and for listeners from other countries who might not be familiar with Australian law, um, how the concept of fair dealing works in Australian copyright law and, and how it's different, if at all, from the concept of fair use under U.S. law. That's actually a very interesting question because we are actually looking now in Australia at perhaps uh, changing fair dealing to something like fair use. So it's a very topical kind of question at the moment. Um, So in, uh, in Australia, we don't have a fair use doctrine. We don't have this idea of transformative use or anything like that. Instead, what we have is a number of different categories of cases where uses might be acceptable even if you don't have copyright permission. And these are called fair dealings. So we have uh, things like news and reporting, um, criticism, private study and research. And recently, we also got uh, an exception for people with disabilities. And in 2010, we got what was um, this new exception, parody and satire, uh, which is very, this is the same as I think the UK and Canada have something similar as well. Um, so what the, so the fair dealing, I suppose, instead of being able to look at something and say, is this fair use? Instead, with fair dealing, you look at something and say, does it come under this category? And then if it does come under this category, is it then fair? And then you get the exception. Interesting. So like more targeted categories than the sort of catch-all fair use provision we have under U.S. law. Interesting. Interesting. In in practice, do you think that makes um, kind of fair dealing in Australia narrower than fair use would be under U.S. law or just different? Uh, no, it would absolutely be narrower. Um, looking at some of the cases, especially with Richard Prince, for example, in America, there is no way that would have come under fair dealing in Australia. Those sorts of cases, even if it is, you know, seen as transforming a work, so it's a new work, it's just not acceptable under our current copyright regime. Okay. So in your paper, you specifically focus on the concept of parody as a form of fair dealing under Australian law. And as you and maybe many listeners will know, parody has also played an important role in the concept of fair use in U.S. law, kind of for better or for worse. I think a lot of copyright scholars are a little um, a little disappointed <laughs> by the extent to which parody has come to play such an important role in in U.S. law. 
and I wanted to get back to that later because I think actually I found your paper really helpful in terms of thinking about the U.S. concept of of parity as well. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of parity in uh, Australian fair dealing principles and in, in copyright law, and sort of how it came to be, and sort of how you see courts currently conceptualizing that exception to copyright protection. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the problem, I guess, is that we don't have any real cases on what is a parody. We don't have a long line of cases looking at this. What does this genre mean? Um, and that that becomes problematic because we don't, you know, you can't, as a legal advisor, tell somebody, uh, yes, what you're doing would fall under this exception because we just we just don't know. So I think what I tried to do in my article is to look at how I think courts would interpret that word parody, um, looking at the way statutory interpretation normally goes, and. And I found that it it is more than likely that this idea of parody would have to have some kind of humour. And that's when I started to think about literary theory and how that we'd always kind of learnt that, you know, parody doesn't have to have that mockery sort of angle to it. So we're being taught by literary theory that this is what a parody is. But then when we're going to go to court, it's more than likely the court is not going to say that that kind of what literary theory says is a parody is actually a parody under the copyright regime. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like in your paper, there was almost like a distinction between like three different perspectives from which you could kind of look at the meaning of the concept of parody, a kind of kind of colloquial perspective. Like when people say parody, what do they think they're talking about? A sort of dictionary perspective that um, that sort of offers a formal definition and then a literary theory definition, which seems both broader and narrower in some ways, depending on the way the way that it's framed. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. Although what I think the that idea of a, a lay definition, what most people would think of as a parody, is actually a bit harder to pin down than what you would think. So if you mm. ask somebody what a parody is, they might say, oh, you know, it has to be might be about mockery or imitating something to make fun of it. But then I think also if um, you were to see something that didn't have that mockery but still had that ironic inversion that the literary theory talks about, I think people still would say that's a parody. So I think it's not as um, clear-cut um, that that category. When it comes to um, the dictionary definition, there are problems with using dictionaries to to look at genres because uh, genres for you know literary theory has been talking about boundaries of genres for you know decades and you're not going to get all of that nuance in you know a couple of words in a dictionary definition and dictionaries do try to cover every single use of of the word so there's a lot of stuff in there that's just probably not relevant and then you also have this idea of parody when it comes to things like uh, YouTube videos and things like that where um, parody might just be imitating someone and maybe not even being uh, mocking them, just saying perhaps silly things and things like that. So this idea of parody having a very neat definition is is very problematic. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems as if – and you were pointing this out, it seemed to me in your paper, that in a lot of ways, we sort of equate parody to humor. And in reality, or rather in a kind of more formal 
definition, parodies might be humorous, but they don't have to be. And just because something happens to be humorous or attempting to be humorous doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a parody. Is that right? Yes. Well, I mean, you can have a parody that's um, that makes you laugh, but also uh, if the 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 mockery about it has to be directed at the text that they're imitating for that, um, the dictionary definition, what I think the courts will see as parody. Uh, so that, you know, even if you have a parody that is quite funny, but it's not exactly mocking the imitated work, it might be mocking something else, or it might just be the juxtaposition or the irony that makes it funny. Um, then that, that, you know, that's not going to come under the definition, but most people seeing that will go, oh, that's a funny parody. Um, and that's where I think that the problem, this disconnect um, between, you know, what literary theory and perhaps even society would view as a parody and then what um, the dictionary definition and what courts would probably see as a parody. Okay. So you talk about several different literary theorists and their sort of positions on the concept of parody in your article. It was interesting to see that there's actually, you know, meaningful disagreement among them. I guess when when isn't there meaningful disagreement among scholars, right? right? (laughs) But meaningful disagreement between among them on sort of how we should conceptualize uh the concept of of parody. Could you talk a little bit about sort of how different theorists have approached the question and sort of what what ways of conceptualizing parody they've suggested? Yeah, sure. So, uh, parody is sometimes often called, um, in that category of texts that are also known as metafiction. Um, that idea of looking at something else, trying to imitate something else. Um, and Margaret Rose in her book on parody, she talks about parody as that idea that if we have art as imitating nature, parodies art imitating art. So it, it's playing with art. It's looking at the, the kind of, um, the structures of what makes art and inverting it in some way to comment upon it. Um, and in her book, she does talk about humor being um, an ingredient in it, but she does say you don't have to have humor in it. And then that's picked up by Linda Hutchin. And she writes um, in her uh, article on parody without ridicule that the purpose of parody isn't about um, bringing another piece of artwork down or excessive criticism. It's, it's more about just um, playing and moving these genres forward by saying, you know, let's pull a piece of artwork apart, see what it's made of, turn it around. And in that way, we're creating new works and and we're kind of pushing the boundaries of of what we can do. Um, But then you have other people like um, you have uh, Seymour Chapman who says, oh, no, you need to have humour. It's about um, kind of uh, playing with an original and making fun of it. Then you also have other people who say, well, actually parody isn't a genre at all. Parody is just a technique. It's a technique of um, borrowing and um, and looking at, at things that have gone before and inverting it. So if we can't even get all these literary theorists to kind of agree what is a parody, it seems um, quite an exceptional sort of task to then try and say, well, we need a neat formulation for a court to look at. So that's what I found the most fascinating about parody, that you know, we've got all these literary theorists that are kind of arguing what is parody, but then we've got a court system that says, well, actually, we need to have a definition. We need to be able to say whether something is you know, within the boundaries or not within the boundaries, protected or not protected. Um, so, it, yeah, it just seems like a, a very interesting place to be to be looking at at the moment. 
One of the things I thought was really interesting and helpful in your paper was how you used particular examples to sort of illustrate how literary theorists would or wouldn't apply the concept of parody to particular works and how that might inflect how um, courts ought to think about those works as well. I, I wonder if you could point to a few of those specific examples, because I think it might make it more concrete for listeners to understand sort of how parody is being conceptualized in ways that might not fit with our sort of colloquial definition. Okay, well, I guess the my my favorite um, work that I used in my article is probably Ulysses, uh, because most people know that as a parody. Um, I know I was taught it as a parody in my undergrad, um, and when I've talked to people, they you know they've often said that it's a parody, and I I think it, it's interesting because um, the that idea of Ulysses being a parody, if you were to take what the courts are most likely going to be seeing as the definition, it probably wouldn't fall under the parody exception for copyright. Um, and that's because it doesn't actually mock Homer's epic in any way. It inverts it. It has that ironic inversion of it, but it's not actually mocking it and saying that, you know, there's something wrong with the epic in itself. It's not, um, you know, it's not making it, it into a piece of ridicule. Um, so I guess in, in my article, I try to say, well, there are ways that we can take the literary theory to inform a legal definition, which is to get rid of this idea of, um, that uh, a parody has to mock or or bring into ridicule the imitated work. That you could actually be honouring it. It could be an homage to the the imitated work. What is needed though is that a sense of irony, that ironic inversion, and that critical distance from the from the work. So if you were to take that idea of a lit, this literary kind of formula for parody, then obviously Ulysses does meet that definition. If however you just went by the the court's most likely definition then without that mockery or ridicule it probably won't um won't be up to scratch and therefore wouldn't be accepted yeah i mean it seems like a definition of parody that wouldn't include a work like ulysses which seems like such a kind of paradigmatic version of a kind of literary application of of the parodic style or or form would would really be troubling wouldn't it yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess the, the mm. problem I always see is that if you are somebody who fancies themselves a parodist, um, then does that mean you have to kind of make sure that you are ridiculing something? You know, if you went to a legal advisor they, and said, look, I want to do a parody, I need to get copyright um, permission, um, and this is really why parody is there because it is so hard to get copyright permission for uses of a, of a work, um, especially when it's, you know, um, perhaps, you know, the smaller independent people, artists and authors trying to um, make these uses of works. So, you know, it's not as easy to go up to some the copyright holder and say, hey, can I parody your work? It's often not going to be um, something that they'd be interested in, which is why we have the parody exception, you know, that idea of a, a market value. You need some kind of intervention because the holders of the goods, in this uh, case copyright, are not going to let that go without some kind of intervention. Um, so that, that idea that, uh, parody, uh, you know, to go to a legal advisor and say, I want to do a parody, the legal advisor is going to say, well, under this current definition, you can't just 
you know, do an homage. You can't, um, you know, can't just play with a piece of art. You need to actually mock it or ridicule it. And it seems to be really an unusual situation to be in, especially when we have things like moral rights, which are about, you know, the integrity of an artist. Here we're saying, um, you know, the, that parody, you're allowed to make fun of something, um, but you're not allowed to pay homage to something. And it just seems, it seems quite strange to me. So I can't pass over Bakhtin in silence because I feel like he pops up so regularly on this podcast. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, how you found Bakhtin's work helpful in conceptualizing the kind of literary theory approach to to parody? Uh, I guess I came to Bakhtin through Linda Hutchin, who talks about that idea of the carnivalesque and that idea of authorised transgression. Um, and there was an article, I don't think I... Um, I, I cited it in my article, but there was one by Jerry Yonover who says it's very hard to up the establishment if the establishment says right on. And it's that idea that for uh, a lot of parodists, um, you don't want to get copyright permission. That's actually antithetical to, to what it is. Um, and that comes from this idea of, um, you know, author, authorized transgression, this idea of, a, um, I think another person on your, um, on one of your podcasts talked about this idea of the carnival where the church and uh, society kind of sanctioned this um, ridicule of all of society and, and there weren't any kind of repercussions during that period and it was kind of a, a way to, to, to break through and, and have that period and then go back to the same boring kind of society Um with, you know, after, after the festival, everything goes back to normal. Um, and yeah, so I, I came through that idea of authorized transgression and where the parody can be an authorized transgression, where the parodists, um, are actually do want their parodies to be seen by the copyright holder as something that they want, or is it meant to be kind of rebelling against, um, you know, these, these texts that are, are in the world? Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, in some ways, the most the most famous parodist in the United States these days is arguably Weird Al Yankovic, and he notoriously always asks people for permission before parodying their their songs. It's almost like a badge of honor that that uh, Weird Al Yankovic decided to 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 create a parody of your work. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder if we could take a shift back to to the courts for a little bit um and 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 i gotta say like i really didn't know very much at all about australian copyright law before reading reading your paper and i was really fascinated by one case you talked about uh that was decided in australia and and how it kind of reflected the conceptualization of fair dealing under Australian law. And that was the, the Kookaburra case. I was, I was wondering if you, if you could describe what happened there, because I think it would be really helpful for listeners in better understanding how fair dealing works currently in practice under Australian law. Okay, so th- this is a, a very famous case, and when it came out, when it was decided, a lot of people were just uh, flabbergasted that this this could happen, um, because this this song Kookaburra was um, a song that was I think it was written for the Girl Guides, but it's a song that 
mostly every Australian kindergartner gets taught. Um, you know, it's a very familiar kind of rhyme that everyone everyone gets taught in school. Everyone knows it. Um, and then we have this other song, uh, this um, um, uh, Down Under song, which is also kind of an Australian icon song. You know, it's the song everyone hears to go to the, the pub and it's the, the pub anthem sort of song. Um, and what's curious about these two um these two songs is that the similarity between them, it just took forever for anyone to kind of realise. And it, it kind of was a bit of an urban myth as well. Uh, and then we had this show, Spicks and Specs, which is a wonderful show we've got that kind of takes apart music and looks at um, music genres and things like that. It's a very funny show. And they had these two and and they brought this urban myth that everyone had that perhaps this refrain in Kookaburra is in Down Under. And they took it apart and people were listening and going, oh, yeah, actually, we can hear that you know, very small little bit out of this um, nursery rhyme in this kind of rock anthem. Um, and it was, you know, done all in fun. But then the copyright holder who had the rights to the Kookaburra song, uh, the lady who had authored it had passed on, so this was her estate, decided that, well, actually we're going to go and um, sue. And, of course, Down Under made a lot of money. It's, a, you know, very well-known song. And people were just kind of, I think, um, confused as to why after all this time they would go after Down Under. And and in the media a lot of people said, oh, you know, the, of course this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, but unfortunately due to the restrictions that we had in the Copyright Act, um, Justice Emmett had to say, well, actually, yeah, they they are similar, therefore that it's a copyright infringement and damages are payable. And people were just kind of kind of in shock because it was just a very small, tiny part of a nursery rhyme. And in the case, the the judge even said, you know, it might not have even been a, a conscious thing putting it in there because it's just such a, a subconscious kind of refrain that everybody just kind of connects with Australiana. So if you wanted something to sound Australian, you would use that and probably not even notice that it came from Kookaburra. So they're saying they might not have even meant to copy it. It might have just been subconscious. But because that refrain is there, then too bad, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, and, and, and you know, and I have to say, it, it actually kind of reminds me of the circumstances with the blurred lines and you know Marvin Gaye's "Get It On" song case. You know, in the sense that it's sort of it sounds like it was almost an homage in that case. It was certainly an homage in the case of of blurred lines, and I think people were equally kind of, well, maybe differently surprised about the outcome. In that case, I, I mean, I, I, I wonder, how do you think, the, I mean, do you think the court decided the Kookaburra case correctly under existing Australian law? And if so, is that a problem? I mean, does it need some alternative perspective? And, you know, to what extent do you think that that the kinds of different ways of thinking about parity you're suggesting could have helped the court reach a different outcome? Yeah, so I'm I'm still not quite sure whether I would have said this was a parody, um, but I thought about well, what other ways in our copyright regime would this be allowable? That you are allowed to pay homage to these kind of iconic sort of things without you know with the, you know this isn't a normal copyright infringement where they're you know uh, working off the labor of somebody else. 
the the use of that nursery rhyme in kookaburra served to kind of elicit responses of what it means to be Australian. I mean, the whole song is about, you know, being Australian, um, you know, the land down under and all of that. So I, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, parody. Well, what is parody? It is looking at the way that art works. It's looking at the way um, an imitated text, it's pulling it apart, all the little things that go in together to look at what it is that made that piece of work, um, you know, good or bad. And then it's kind of inverting it. And And then I thought about, well, here you've got a nursery rhyme being uh, changed, being put into a rock anthem, a reggae rock anthem indeed. Um, so it, it is, it's inverting it. You wouldn't expect, you know, it's much like uh, Enter Sandman with a children's prayer in it. It's it's, mm. it's highly unusual to have that in there um, and that idea of it evoking the the imitated work. It obviously did evoke the imitated work, even if people didn't quite get that it was kookaburra, they got that it meant childhood and Australiana and all of that. So you've got the you've got the imitation, you've got the ironic inversion by the use of it, and you've got that critical distance. They're commenting on the sounds in that in that song being quite similar to the sounds of Australia and what that means to you know to Australians those that 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 music, that refrain. So I thought in that way it could be seen as a parody. But, of course, it's not really mocking the nursery rhyme. It's not mocking or um, trying to put it into ridicule. It really is just paying homage to that to that kind of music. Right. Could, could you talk a little bit then about how you think courts can and should operationalize the concept of parody for the purpose of fair dealing based on some of these insights from literary theory that you've introduced? Well, I, I think... I think that this is probably uh, an article, uh, an article that will go unheard, of, unheard, um, an argument that might go unheard as well, um, because the the way that courts will interpret it will, you know, obviously the the way that we look at statutory um, interpretation is we look at the the purpose of the act, and you know, the purpose of the Copyright Act is in, to incentivize new works um, by protecting authors and allowing them to enter into a market, um, but when it came to parody, we didn't really get that kind of consultation and that, I mean, there was consultation, but we didn't have a big kind of public debate about the importance of parody. So when you look at the purpose for bringing this parody exception in, there isn't really a lot there to grapple with. You know, we have some people say, well, we have an, an Australian tradition of poking fun of ourselves, um, you know, but that's not quite helpful. So for the court, they, you know, they're going to look at, well, is this, um, what is the ordinary and natural meaning of the word parody? They're going to pick up a dictionary or they're going to look overseas. And that might be problematic too, because we have the the European Union um, saying actually mockery has to be part of parody. Uh, we have a Canadian case taking up that um, definition of parody. So I think that the only way, um, you know, the, the only thing we can really do is try and push judges to kind of say, 
you know, perhaps we need to just look outside of the box. And it's hard when you are kind of restricted in statutory interpretation by not being able to look at extrinsic materials unless the word itself, there's some ambiguity to it. And I guess that's that's the only argument we can do is say, well, actually parody isn't as clear cut as it looks in the dictionary. It is ambiguous. And because it is ambiguous, you kind of need to look wider in the interpretive um in, in the interpretive process. So Sarah, in, in closing, um, I, you know, one of the things that struck me as an American copyright scholar reading your article was the way in which so many of the ideas you were discussing and investigating in your article seemed germane to thinking about fair use and especially parody under U.S. law as well, because I think much as the circumstances you've described in in Australia, uh, U.S. courts seem to have a pretty blinkered, pretty reductive view of of the concept of of parody as well. And I wonder if you know, to the extent you're familiar with um, U.S. law, you could reflect on whether or not you think that some of the observations that you're making about the concept of parity under Australian fair dealing principles might also be helpful for U.S. courts thinking about similar questions. Yeah, well, I'm definitely not an expert on American fair use. Um, you know, I, I obviously know Campbell and Acuff Rose and those sort of cases. Um, but I, I think the idea of having fair use and this idea of um, transformative use is something that really is missing in Australia. And I think that is probably why we are looking to perhaps get rid of these um, dealing categories and move to a more US kind of um, fair use doctrine. So it might be that we, you know, we, if we continue this conversation in a couple of years, that it might be you know, exactly the same that our, our law might have adopted what you have in America. Um, but what I have read is that even though you do have that transformative um, kind of transformative use as an exception, that it doesn't mean that just anything can go. Um, and then that, you know, obviously there has to be a narrowing. Um, and But that idea of from the starting point being uh, you know, is there a new work that has come out of this? Um, and in in that uh, case of Carew and Prince, I mean, the court even said it didn't matter whether the um, the the person who had made the new work, it didn't matter whether they were even commenting or, or um, really paying homage or parodying. It didn't matter. It didn't have to have any kind of connection to the imitated work as long as it was a new work in its own right. I think, you know, that kind of going in that direction um, just kind of opens up the boundaries of, of all these kind of things that we're talking about. And really, if you think about copyright as being an incentive to create new works, which in turn, you know, benefits the public, then that is kind of the way that the court should be going. But as I said, I'm not an expert in American um, fair use doctrine, so there could be cases that have have pushed against cases like the Prince case. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I've, yeah, um, find it very interesting. Yeah, great. Well, Sarah, thanks so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you about your, your excellent paper, which really helped me think differently about conceptualizing parity in, in, the, context, in the context of both fair use and fair dealing. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
We're here with Rob Reiner discussing his new movie, Fire Sale. The ads that I've seen on the film say Fire Sale is just plain nuts. We're not trying to be some kind of wacky, crazy, kooky, wild comedy. We're trying to do Bergman. We're trying to do Fellini. We're trying to make art here. But the audience was laughing at the film. I know, we failed. Fire Sale. It's just plain nuts. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested.